Welcome back to the MedBullet Step 2 and 3 podcast. On today's episode, we'll cover the topic of legal principles, found under the stats section at medbullets.com. As a quick introduction, the following principles are intended to be applied only to a variety of individual situations you may face on the USMLE. So in this episode, we'll go over capacity, competence, and consent, end-of-life issues, confidentiality, minors, child and elder abuse, and other principles. In terms of capacity versus competence, capacity is a medical term, while competence is a legal term. Competent patients have the right to refuse medical information and medical treatments. For example, a feeding tube is a medical treatment. So know that a competent person can refuse life-saving hydration or nutrition. Assume that the patient is competent unless there is a history of a suicide attempt, the patient is psychotic, and or the patient cannot communicate. In order to obtain informed consent, the patient must understand the risks, benefits, and alternatives, including no treatment. The patient must agree with the plan of care without coercion. Exceptions include emergencies, waiver by the patient, patient lacking decision-making capacity, and therapeutic privilege, in which the physician deprives an unconscious or confused patient of his autonomy in order to protect the patient's health. This is known as paternalism. Note that written consent can be revoked orally at any time. Components of informed consent include the patient makes and communicates a choice, the patient is informed and the information has not been withheld from the patient, the decision remains stable over time, the decision is consistent with the patient's values and goals, the decision is not the result of delusions or hallucinations, and consent is implied in emergency situations without the healthcare proxy and if the patient is unresponsive slash confused. Consent from a patient's spouse is not required treatment of a patient with capacity. Now let's talk about some end-of-life issues. If the patient cannot make decisions, surrogate decision makers must use the following criteria. A subjective standard or an advanced directive of the patient An example of this is the living will, in which the patient provides specific instructions to withhold or withdraw life-sustaining treatment. A substituted judgment is what would the patient want. So a durable power of attorney is who the patient designates as a healthcare proxy to make decisions. This supersedes the living will if both exist. If the patient cannot make decisions, surrogate decision makers may also follow the criteria of the quote-unquote best interests of the patient and know that when no living will or durable power of attorney exists, the clinician is responsible for determining an appropriate surrogate decision maker from available family members. The priority of next of kin for surrogate decision makers is as follows. A legal guardian appointed by a court, spouse, adult children older than 18 years old, parents, adult siblings, grandparents slash grandchildren, and a friend of the patient. In terms of euthanasia, passively allowing a patient to die is acceptable but do everything you can to relieve the patient's suffering. Active killing of the patient is not acceptable. In terms of when treatment should stop, if the physician thinks the treatment is futile but the family insists on treatment, you should continue the treatment. However, if after declaration of brain death, the family still insists on treatment, you can stop the treatment. Now let's talk about confidentiality. Confidentiality between physician and patient is generally absolute. Exceptions include suspicion of child-slash-elder abuse, gunshot or stabbing injuries must be reported to the police, communicable diseases must be reported if the patient is a harm to others or themselves, which is known as the Tarasoff decision. Other exceptions include when no alternative means exist to warn others, 
and when the patient waives the right to privacy, for example, for insurance purposes. Now let's talk about some issues surrounding minors. Minors cannot give informed consent unless emancipated through marriage, a parent, military service, or living alone. A minor's refusal of treatment can be overruled by a parent. Parents cannot withhold life or limb-saving treatment from their children, but can refuse other treatment. For example, a 17-year-old girl whose parents cannot be contacted. The physician may treat a threat to health under in locum parentis. In the setting of a 17-year-old girl living on her own, the patient can choose whether or not to give consent. In the setting of a 17-year-old girl who is requesting birth control, you can provide access even in the absence of parental consent. In the setting of a 16-year-old girl who refuses but the mother consents, you should treat the patient. In the setting of a 16-year-old girl who consents but the mother refuses, do not treat this patient. Some other general principles to mention include avoid going to court, use trained medical interpreters when possible, remember that committed mentally ill patients retain their rights, never abandon a patient, and disclose all errors regardless of harm. In terms of never abandoning a patient, know that transferring a patient to another physician's care is rarely, if ever, a correct answer on the USMLE. If a treatment such as abortion, birth control, etc. is against a physician's personal beliefs, that physician does not have to provide that treatment. However, they are responsible for referring their patient to a provider who is willing and able to provide such care. Finally, in terms of disclosing all errors regardless of harm, remember that consulting risk management alone is rarely, if ever, a correct answer on the USMLE. Finally, just a quick word about child and elder abuse. If suspected abuse is occurring, physicians are mandated reporters and must report to Child Protective Services or Adult Protective Services. Okay, so now that we've gone over the major points about this topic, let's go over a few questions to apply the information and get a sense of how this topic has been tested on past exams. An 86-year-old man is admitted to the hospital for management of pneumonia. His hospital course has been relatively uneventful, and he is progressing well. On morning rounds, nearing the end of the patient's hospital stay, the patient's cousin finally arrives to the hospital for the first time after not being present for most of the patient's hospitalization. He asks about the patient's prognosis and potential future discharge date as he is the primary caretaker of the patient and needs to plan for his arrival home. The patient is doing well and can likely be discharged in the next few days. Which of the following is the most appropriate course of action? And the choices are 1. Bring the cousin to the room and ask the patient if it's acceptable to disclose his course. 2. Bring the cousin to the room and explain the plan to both the patient and the cousin. 3. Explain that you cannot discuss the patient's care at this time. 4. Explain the plan to discharge the patient in the next few days. And 5. Tell the cousin that you do not know the patient's course well. The correct answer to this question is 3. Explain that you cannot discuss the patient's care at this time. So the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act, or HIPAA, dictates that a physician may not share healthcare information without the patient's permission. It is appropriate to deny requests from family members when there is not an explicit understanding that information can be shared. If there is no explicit permission obtained from a patient for a family member to be involved in the patient's care, then it's considered unethical to share information with the family member. One notable exception to this rule is that it is acceptable to share information with others in the absence of patient permission when the information directly endangers the family member slash individual, such as a threat to kill an individual. 
Other instances where it's acceptable to breach confidentiality include situations where it is a legal requirement to report certain diseases slash conditions or special situations, such as child slash elder abuse. Otherwise, the plan and care should be discussed with the patient. If the patient is unable to discuss their care, then the plan can be discussed with their healthcare proxy. To quickly go over the incorrect answers, answer one, bring the cousin to the room and ask the patient if it's acceptable to disclose his course is inappropriate because it may put the patient under pressure to say yes in the presence of his cousin. Healthcare decision-making should be discussed with the patient in private without any possible coercion. Answer two, bring the cousin to the room and explain the plan to both the patient and the cousin is inappropriate because the patient needs to explicitly state that it's appropriate to share this information prior to the cousin being informed. Answer four, explain the plan to discharge the patient in the next few days is true, but can be conveyed once the patient has stated it's appropriate to share the information with the cousin. And finally, answer five, tell the cousin that you do not know the patient's course well is lying, which is always inappropriate for the USMLE. You should merely explain the truth, which is that the physician cannot disclose information about the patient at this time. To leave you with a bullet summary, healthcare information cannot be discussed with anyone unless approved by the patient. Moving on to the next question. A 16-year-old female presents to her pediatrician's office requesting to be started on an oral contraceptive pill. She has no significant past medical history and is not currently taking any medications. The physician is a devout member of the Roman Catholic Church and is strongly opposed to the use of any type of artificial contraception. Which of the following is the most appropriate response to this patient's request? And the choices are 1. The physician is obligated to prescribe the oral contraceptives regardless of his personal beliefs. 2. Refuse to prescribe the oral contraceptive. 3. Suggest that the patient remain abstinent or, if necessary, use an alternative means of birth control. 4. Explain that he will refer the patient to one of his partners who can fulfill this request. And 5. Tell the patient that he is unable to prescribe this medication without parental consent. The correct answer to this question is 4. Explain that he will refer the patient to one of his partners who can fulfill this request. So physicians are allowed to remove themselves from a patient's care only if they are able to find another physician willing to treat the patient. It is rarely a correct answer on the USMLE examinations to abandon a patient or refer them to another physician for evaluation slash treatment. However, for certain issues to which a physician might have personal, moral, or ethical opposition, it is acceptable for a physician to refuse to provide treatment based on their own personal beliefs. This is also the case when significant disagreements arise between a physician and his or her patient. The physician must ensure that the patient is referred or has access to these services from another provider. This means that for physicians in very rural areas, where another provider may not be available within reasonable driving distance, there may be an obligation to provide these treatments, even if they are against the patient's own personal beliefs. Flanagan Clygus et al. discussed dismissing pediatrics patients from a practice because the parents refused to vaccinate their children. 39% of pediatricians reported that they would dismiss patients who refused all vaccinations. This sentiment holds true for the following traditional vaccinations diphtheria and tetanus toxoids and acellular pertussis, inactivated poliovirus, haemophilus influenza type B, measles, mumps, and rubella. Adams discusses physician refusal of care in providing abortion services. 
While the author agrees that a physician should not be required to provide care that violates their personal beliefs, it is important for a physician with beliefs that would prevent them from even providing counseling on the available treatment options to consider choosing to practice in an area where their ability to provide a full disclosure of options is not compromised by their personal moral stance. To quickly go over the incorrect answers, answer one, physicians are not obligated to provide treatment that violates their personal beliefs or to which they are morally slash ethically opposed. Answer two, it would be unethical for the physician to simply refuse to prescribe this medication without offering the patient the opportunity to seek treatment from another physician who could provide this care. Answer three, suggests that the patient remain abstinent or, if necessary, use an alternative means of birth control is incorrect as this is an unacceptable solution to this situation. The patient should not be limited in the scope of care she can receive by the physician's personal beliefs. And finally, answer five, tell the patient that he is unable to prescribe this medication without parental consent is incorrect, as parental consent is not required for certain issues, including substance abuse, birth control, pregnancy, sexually transmitted infections, or abuse. And moving on to the final question. A 33-year-old man presents to the emergency department after a head-on motor vehicle collision. The patient is unconscious and is intubated and mechanically ventilated. His vitals are acutely unstable, and a fast exam is notable for free fluid in the abdomen, suggestive of acute intra-abdominal bleeding. The patient is prepared for transfusion and emergency surgery. Prior to transfusion, nursing notes that the patient is a Jehovah's Witness according to the chart. However, there is no other information available regarding the patient's preferences, and the physician is unable to contact a healthcare proxy or family member to verify the patient's wishes. Which of the following is the best next step in management? And the choices are one, consult the hospital ethics committee for the best course of action. Two, hold any interventions until a healthcare proxy can be contacted or the patient can respond. Three, hold blood products and send the patient to the operating room. Four, start the patient on IV fluids and send the patient to the operating room. And five, transfuse the patient and send the patient to the operating room. The correct answer to this question is five, transfuse the patient and send the patient to the operating room. So this patient is presenting after trauma and needs a transfusion and emergency surgery. However, he is also a Jehovah's Witness without any clear specifications of the care he wants. Since there is no available source of information to specify the patient's wishes, emergency interventions should be given and consent is implied. In general, the wishes of a patient must be respected so long as there is clear documentation of the wishes or the patient expresses their wishes. The only time when this is not true is in pediatric patients where life and limb-saving interventions cannot be refused. In an emergency setting with an unclear understanding of the patient's wishes, consent is implied. To quickly go over the incorrect answers, answer one, consulting the hospital ethics committee for the best course of action is rarely the correct answer, as there is typically enough information for the physician to make the best decision for the patient on the USMLE. In real life, this may be appropriate if there are two family members, such as children of the patient, with disagreeing wishes on what to do for the patient without any other information. Answer two, holding any interventions until a healthcare proxy can be contacted or the patient can respond is inappropriate as holding life-saving therapy may result in death. This may be appropriate if the patient has specific documentation stating that they do not want the intervention, thus warranting verifying this information before acting further. Answer three, holding blood products and sending the patient to the operating room would be appropriate if the patient stated they did not want blood products or if the patient had specifically outlined their wishes stating that they do not want blood products. 
However, one cannot assume what this patient wants based on what most Jehovah's Witnesses would want. And finally, answer four, starting the patient on IV fluids and sending them to the operating room is an appropriate intervention for a Jehovah's Witness with clear wishes that they do not want blood products. In this case, it's unclear what the patient's wishes are. To leave you with a bullet summary, consent is not required in emergency situations for interventions without a clear understanding of what the patient wants. That's all for this review about legal principles. Hopefully that was helpful. This is the MedBullets Step 2 and 3 podcast, a daily audio review session by MedBullets, the free learning and collaboration community for medical student education. Keep in mind that these podcasts are designed to go along with the topics on MedBullets.com, and in fact, you can listen to these episodes right on the MedBullets website or mobile app while going through the topic. If you've gotten any value from the MedBullets Step 2 and 3 podcast so far, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and writing us a review on Apple Podcasts. It will help us spread the word and increase our discoverability tremendously. Thanks so much, and we'll see you all tomorrow.